What's up, everybody? Welcome in to the Live for Supercross podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the show. Uh, we had a great show on Saturday, as we've had pretty much every week this year. We're coming off a great Triple Crown in Glendale to get to see another Speedway race. And look, you know, when it comes to the Speedway races, I'm kind of torn. You know, they don't have the ability to broadcast them as well. The cameras are farther away. And uh, while they're sometimes unpredictable, uh, when it comes to the track, we get situations like we did in Daytona sometimes, where it was pretty much just a, a copy paste of the track we had the previous year. Uh, but this year, I think uh, while still sticking true uh, to the features that they like to feature every year at the Speedway, uh, they did give us a more exciting track than we usually get outside. Uh, they did make a few changes in terms of the layout. And uh, what made it an even better show was the track was absolutely groomed to perfection. Uh, despite the fact that we got reports of rain overnight, uh, they came out in the morning and everything looked nice and smooth. And uh, James Stewart was saying, you know, that these are the same conditions they ride uh, down at the practice tracks, the red clay of Florida, uh, pretty much all week when they're down at the training facilities getting ready for the weekend action. So you knew that everybody was going to come out firing and that's exactly what happened here. And when you consider that the track's uh, nearly twice as long as it can be in some of the shorter stadiums where you're getting 50 second lap times, uh, tonight, you know, and Saturday in Atlanta, everything was around a minute 30. The best lap times of the night by uh, Chase Sexton uh, came in at a minute 28 and change. So we're looking at long laps even when you're going fast. And uh, you're going to get it all night because the track's not going to break down as much because fewer laps are going to be done. You know, the heat races were only five laps long. Now, when it comes to the track itself, uh, let's talk about uh, some of the notable features. Uh, for one thing, you got a lot of doubles, doubles of every variety, and you've got a lot of rhythm sections. Uh, you've got two long ones in particular, and uh, though they'd be fun to watch, we'd get a situation a lot like we did in Glendale last week uh, where they were uh, pretty one-lined, or if there was a second option, it was uh, came out in time pretty much identical uh, to the primary choice. And so you're not going to see a lot of time made up or lost here despite how much time the riders spend in the air in these sections, uh, but they're still cool to see. And there were some uh, secondary rhythm sections that I thought were probably uh, the most exciting and notable features of the track. Uh, one in particular, right after the pit lane, uh, you know, it was a sand rhythm section. They were double and tripling through the sand rollers. And usually when they bring sand in, it's to slow these guys down and they build these big rollers where they're just leaning back and penning it. That wasn't the case this time. They were actually able to establish a rhythm through them and into the uh, red clay section that followed. And it was a place where people set up a lot of passes going into the right 90 turn that followed and where a lot of time uh, could be made up or lost uh, depending on how well 
you tackled the issue. Uh, of course, the final uh, section or the sections that we have to talk about are the whoops. They brought two of them in Atlanta. Both of them were absolutely gnarly, uh, pretty similar. Uh, but that first one in particular proved to be absolutely treacherous. Collects Nate Thrasher. We'll talk about that later. He goes off on a stretcher. Uh, also, where the number nine. Nine of Adam Sansarillo had his gnarly crash, which we're also going to talk about when we get there in the program. And uh, even Cooper Webb said these things are gnarly. A guy who's uh, not eager to admit that he struggles with anything, and and the troughs in between them, you could lay a king size bed down there, and yet uh, they were hard to establish a jumping line through because they were so steep, you couldn't really lay the bike in there uh, at, at any point and get both tires down to deliver any gas. And uh, these would prove to be a big separator, as the gnarly whoops have proved to be all season, and generally proved to be in the sport. Now, before we go ahead and talk about what happened last night, let's talk about what happened here in Atlanta last year. Uh, normally, I don't put that much stock in what happens from year to year. The guys are at different points at so many points throughout their seasons. I'm not sure it's always relevant. And the tracks do change both in conditions and layout from year to year. But with these outdoor tracks, you can see people establish some consistency. We know how many Eli's won in Daytona. And certain people uh, tend to specialize in these hybrid situations, uh, you know, where it's uh, got elements of both motocross and supercross blended into it. Um, a guy like Nate Thrasher is someone you'd expect uh, to be good here. Um, but not as good as Hunter Lawrence. When you look at the 250s last year, uh, we had an East-West showdown, not what we got here this year. This year, we're just going with the East class. The East-West showdown is next week. Uh, but Hunter Lawrence won here in 22. He beat Christian Craig straight up, uh, and he beat his brother who did recover to third, but who had some awful luck early. And I mean, look, we already know Hunter Lawrence is the strong favorite coming into this thing. He's won five out of six this year, took a third in the one he didn't win. Uh, but when you factor in how good he is at these kinds of tracks and how he did here last year, I think it, it's maybe worth pointing out that he's an even stronger favorite than normal. Now, when it comes to the 450s, it was uh, the new father of uh, El Hombre, Jason Anderson, who won here last year uh, at round 14 was when Atlanta happened last year. He won that race and the next three, uh, taking the last four of the season. Uh, Eli had it locked up by this point, so he was not challenging Anderson at all. Either way, it was nice to see Jason Anderson have a late season resurgence in 22, and we certainly know that he needs one this year, uh, you know, but with him just having a kid and, and, and the trying week he had, even by a supercross racer standards, uh, I saw this thing going absolutely one of two ways. He was either going to come out 
and uh, win the, the main event by 30 seconds in commemoration of the event, running on pure adrenaline, or he was going to be so exhausted that he ended up taking last place. Of course, we know that latter option is what ended up happening, uh, but uh, there were moments earlier on in the night, which we'll talk about when we get to the heat races, where he did seem like he was going to come out and uh, just gut this race out in Atlanta. But when you look at last year's race, despite the number 21 winning, he really should have taken second place there. Chase Sexton had the lead early, took off, was gone, leaned over in a bull berm, and uh, listening to Ricky Carmichael commentate on the thing was like absolute deja vu. I had almost forgotten that this guy would have been challenging just like he would have been this year uh, an entire year ago. I forgot how fast he was going inside even before the last outdoor season. And uh, he was doing things like uh, he has been throughout this season, putting it down, washing the front end. Uh, Here last year, uh, was able to recover for a third place, uh, I believe, in that event. Uh, We're hoping for better for him here in Atlanta going into the thing. And uh, he stayed up last week. You know, in all three events, he looked pretty good, looked safe, uh, looked a little tight, but uh, got it done despite lacking the raw speed. Now we want to see if he can do that with the speed as well. And it seemed like this would be a week that he could do it. He certainly is capable of sending it uh, on these longer, faster tracks uh, as much as anyone. As for uh, what it looks like going into this thing this year, besides the obvious favorite of Hunter Lawrence, uh, it could go, if not him, to pretty much anyone on the Star Yamaha crew. Uh, We mentioned Nate Thrasher earlier. This is a home race for him. And uh, that guy with the drawl always seems fast outdoors. His teammate, Jordan Smith, he's got some incentive, right? Because this guy DNF'd and had to sit around for a while afterwards, just ruminating on it. So you know that he's motivated and you know he's got the speed if he can keep the bike up. And then you've got Hayden Deegan. He's already got two third places and you know that he is expecting to do better than he has uh, already, you know, you know, he wants a second, you know, he wants a win and he seems to be getting up the spunk and confidence to do it. I don't think anybody would be surprised with a second or even a win just with a little bit of luck. And uh, last note on the 250s there, Joe Shimoda's back. Uh, you don't expect him to have the pace uh, after being out as long as he has been with a collarbone injury. Uh, but it's just nice to see him out there. Seems like a chill, mellow dude. And uh, boy, was he fast at the end of outdoors last year. And uh, we just hope he can get some bike time in uh, in preparation for the outdoor motos this season. As for Eli Tomac, doesn't have it wrapped up this year, moving on to the 450 class, uh, but looked as good as uh, ever in Glendale, and he's no slouch at speedways. We talked his record, uh, but you know, at the same time, if you look at his record, his pace is almost always one on, one off. He'll give you a win, he'll give you a third to fifth performance. He'll give you a win, he'll give you a third to fifth. The only exception 
was in San Diego. Well, in the first two rounds of the season, Anaheim and San Diego, he wins back to back. And then, of course, he's won the last two here with Seattle and Glendale. Uh, so considering this guy's like clockwork, we've talked about it before on the podcast, uh, I think he's due for a third to sixth performance here. Obviously, I know what happened, so I could say whatever the hell I want and pretend that I'm brilliant. But I think genuinely, if you look at his record, he was due for a performance like this at some time. And you knew that Cooper Webb was counting on it. Uh, now, when it comes to Cooper Webb, this is kind of a situation, a copy paste that he had going into Seattle. Um, you know, that was the first time after his resurgence that Eli was really able to just straight up drop him. Uh, and then in Glendale, you know, he comes out seven points down. We know he's a back against the wall type of dude. We know he's going to show up. People bitch about his pace all the time, but he won a race here during the residency in 21 and he came out in qualifying fourth overall, uh, but he looked like he was on a mission. He looked uh, as aggressive as anyone uh, putting down lap times, even the few that were faster than him. And he definitely had much more speed compared to Eli in the morning. Now, we're going to go ahead and move on to the 250 heat races here. Uh, and in, in the first heat, Hayden Deegan fans, I'm sure, were thrilled to see Deegan get the lead early. And uh, it would have been interesting to see if he had been able to bring this thing home if he hadn't put the bike down. Now, obviously he did. We'll take a look at the clip. Um, he's going on to this tabletop in the first really long rhythm section. He's scrubbing hard onto that thing and saving a lot of time. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he shifts into neutral and just absolutely nosedives, endos uh, right off the tabletop into the landing jump. Uh, and really strong just that he was able to uh, prevent that from being worse because uh, he wasn't able to straighten the bike out the way he scrubs without being able to get the throttle down. Of course, that lets Lawrence get in the lead and Lawrence ends up winning by over 11 seconds. Uh, with that pace, he might have reeled Deegan in either way, uh, but Lawrence was stuck behind Tom Vial for quite a while. He makes this beautiful move to get past him in the whoops, just blitzes right by him. And Vial's pretty good at whoops despite having minimal experience with him. And Lawrence, just superb technique as both of the brothers, as both of the brothers do in these big whoops. Um, as for Deegan, he recovers for fourth. Uh, with Joe Shimoda right on his tail. And uh, they had a little uh, incident there. You know, Joe Shimoda thought he wasn't going to cut down as hard as he did before that rhythm section on the last lap. Hayden Deegan showing his displeasure. And uh, now that he's feeling at home in, in the sport as a pro, which didn't take long, uh, we're seeing week after week that he is uh, ramping up uh, the sportsmanship, the, the, the tactics, the, the aggression. And uh, it's certainly going to bring a kind of racing uh, that uh, maybe we haven't seen in a while, right? We've seen guys like Barsha who are, uh, you know, 
get you coming up from behind. Uh, we haven't seen guys uh, that won't let you pass no matter what. We're going to talk about that obviously in the main event. Look at a little footage of him fending Hunter Lawrence off. Uh, but given it to Shimoda, Shimoda's a nice dude. And if he's willing to, uh, or if he's not willing to take a little friendly fire from that dude, uh, then you know that he's really not going to take shit from anybody. And uh, I'm excited to see how that plays out as he gets better and better and feels uh, even more at home in the class. Um, it was nice to see Tom Vial running here, and uh, he was running fast, you know, no shame in Lawrence getting by you. The only two guys uh, that uh, were able to get past him at any point in the race, you know, Deegan before he crashed, uh, were putting down absolute heaters, and... Uh, it was a shame to see him go down in the main event. We are going to take a look at that. It happens in the first lap. And uh, the reason I'm so bummed for him here, even more than I would be normally, is the fact that uh, I really want to see how these uh, GP guys, not a guy like Caroli, who's at the end of his career, despite being great, but how a guy in his prime comes out and competes against our best outside, not just at donations, but week after week. And outdoors is where he's going to shine. And you just want to see him building momentum towards the end of the season here so that he's firing on all cylinders when we get to the Lucas, uh, you know, Lucas Oil Motocross Championship in just a couple of months. Now, when it comes to the second heat, uh, not a lot of passing, not a lot going on. It is the Nate Thrasher and Jordan Smith show, um, the other side of the Star Yamaha Racing crew. Um, Nate Smith just a little bit faster. Smith couldn't quite reel him in, although he was close, never even got close enough to really make a move. And uh, it looked like Nate Thrasher right here was running on momentum, was feeling good despite his torn ACL. And it looked like he was a contender for the night show. And what I want to do is I want to look at his lap times versus Hunter Lawrence's uh, between the two heat races. If you look at the first four laps, Nate Thrasher has a slight edge to Hunter Lawrence. And so you're thinking he could come out here and finally keep pace with this guy. But when you look at lap five, which is the only lap that Hunter Lawrence really had clean air to operate with, he chops down uh, the lap time by an entire second to anything Nate Thrasher did, puts down the fastest one of the race, of either race, and it just shows what uh, this guy can do when he feels like turning it on. Uh, I gotta think if you are uh, anybody but Hunter Lawrence seeing that performance early, you're not really gonna be uh, too stoked on your chances lining up for the 15 minutes plus one lap in the night show. Now, when we get into the 250 main, it doesn't take any time for shit to get pretty crazy. Right from the first lap, stuff starts going down, and that's where the majority 
of the action would happen. The things that happened in the opening moments would set the precedent for the rest of the race in a way, and certainly for the individual riders concerned. Right out of the gate, we see Deegan and Hunter Lawrence get a great jump. We saw how they did in the heat. We knew they were going to be contenders. And apparently Hunter Lawrence has been paying attention to Hayden Deegan's improvement as well as Hayden Deegan's riding style because he did not want to have to spend any time behind this guy. And more importantly, he didn't want to risk having to try to get around him. So early on after the uh, finish line doubles, he boxes them out right before that tunnel jump. We'd see this happening a lot. And of course, Hayden Deegan would pay him back just a couple laps later. But before we could talk about that, we have to talk about the Tom Vial crash that happened right here in the very first lap. We're going to look at a clip of this thing and it was entirely gnarly, man. And and not just for the reasons you might think, because when you check it out, it's, it's pretty obvious what happens. They come over the finish line double, and then there's that second enormous double. And Cody Schock comes in from his line on the outside, and Tom Vial ends up getting sandwiched between him and another rider. At first, there, there's enough distance that Vial's going to be okay, but Shock is drifting over. I don't know if he got cross-rutted or if uh, he simply didn't realize someone was there and he's trying to cut towards the inside for the tunnel jump. Uh, but his front wheel comes in, or his back wheel comes into Vial's front end, and Vial sees it happening. And what's amazing about this, I've seen guys come together in the air before, and it's a tragedy when that front end gets taken out and the bike starts to lean over because you know the guy's not going to be able to recover it. And in this instance, Vial didn't even have time to bail. But when you watch it the second time, what I really want you to pay attention to is that Vial sees this coming and he tries to kick Cody Shock's bike away from him. Like some sort of ninja, the number 128 gets the right leg out and ends up making contact with Shock's fender. He kicks it pretty hard. You could see it flapping. And, uh, you know, he was aiming for the back tire. And uh, one, I've never seen that presence of mind. And two, I've never seen a back tire kicked out in midair with hang time like that. I would imagine Cody Shock would have gone spinning. And, and while I'm glad he didn't get hurt, there wasn't a second injury, it would have been amazing to see if Vial had been able to anticipate that action just a moment sooner. Uh, whatever the case there, uh, Vial does uh, not finish the race. And as we alluded to earlier, quite a shame because this dude, uh, we wanted him to be fit for the outdoors. I don't know if he's going to be back next week. Uh, the guy's taken heavy slams before. Uh, you know, he's crashed just this season and, and come back from it. He's a tough dude. Those MXGP guys are. Uh, but he fell from some altitude. And I, I am curious to see the injury report on that. I hope the Frenchman gets better soon if he's out at all. Meanwhile, same time this is going on, Hunter Lawrence almost has a gnarly crash 
of his zone. We know he likes to build a little gap early and then just maintain it. And that's especially what he wanted to do with Hayden Deegan on his tail. Knows this kid is coming and uh, he's pushing it so hard. He just loses track of where he is in that rhythm section just after the mechanics area. Once they transition to the, the red clay, he tries to triple what is clearly a double uh, gets a hand, just lands right on top of the third jump. Front wheel compresses hard, and uh, he gives it a handful of throttle, which probably is what allowed him to save it in the end. But it sends him flying off the back of the bike, Superman style. The fact that he could save this thing was absolutely incredible. And uh, that might be the save of the year. The only contender, maybe last week, RJ Hampshire in Glendale nearly loses it through the whoops. He was sending it there all day, nearly to his detriment. He ends up coming off the back of the bike in a similar fashion, and he's doing it in a whoops section. Uh, on the other end, Hunter Lawrence is going a lot faster, and I think his feet did end up above his head at one point. So if you want to go in, go ahead and write in, let me know which one do you think was the save of the year so far, and will we get one crazier? And, you know, I got to say with these uh, top caliber riders, the real cream of the crop, it's amazing because not only can they ride better than other guys, but what we're seeing is they're also able to save crashes in situations where anybody else would have gone down. It's a testament to their strength and, and I think their coordination and, and I think we're going to see even more of it. Uh, getting back to Lawrence, uh, what's more impressive about him is he doesn't let this deter him at all. He's not going to waste any time pedaling around uh, in second and third. He decides he's going to get right back on Deegan's tail, uh, but he has to work for a couple of laps even though he has the speed because Hayden Deegan despite being inexperienced and maybe he's not inexperienced at all because he raced so much as an amateur like they all do uh, but he was just showing a veteran level of awareness of what lines hunter lawrence was gonna try to take to get around him and he just managed to get his bike across the track to wherever it needed to be to get in front of the number 96 and we all saw the incident, you know, I guess we'll take a look at it right here where uh, Hunter Lawrence tries to pass Hayden Deegan right before that tunnel jump on the flat 90 by cutting inside. Uh, we saw Hayden Deegan shut him down by leaning into him hard with the shoulder, just like he did to Jordan Smith, his own teammate, a couple weeks ago. And uh Hunter Lawrence, I think he thought he had that. I think against any other rider in the class, he gets a wheel in there and they just let him have it. We talked about Deegan's attitude. He's not going to let anybody get around him. Hunter Lawrence makes the adjustment quickly to his credit and finds a way to get around him just a little bit later uh, and just closes the door, you know, in one of the straight sections, uh, learn from his mistake and he takes off, doesn't give Deegan another opportunity. Uh, Jordan Smith ends up uh, getting around 
his teammate, the number 238, a few minutes later. And you wondered if there could be some sort of confrontation given what happened the last time these two were on the track together. Deegan didn't push the issue too hard. Smith didn't push the issue too hard. And they both end up getting on the podium as a result of it. Uh, if you're looking at the 250s here, you got to say it's wrapped up, probably felt that way already. Uh, but, you know, over 40 points uh, for Hunter Lawrence. But I guess the most interesting thing, if you're a motocross fan, is that Hayden Deegan looks like he's going to take second in the championship points if he keeps riding like this. His rookie season after coming out in a Futures event and uh, not even placing that well, not even making the podium for someone of his talent. And uh, that's just a real story, man. And I, I still wouldn't be surprised if he could wrestle away one win from Hunter Lawrence, if Lawrence has a bad start uh, before the end of the season. Now, getting into the 450s here, uh, we got to waste no time in saying poor Adam Sansarillo, right? Uh, I, I feel bad because I said in a previous episode on the podcast that this guy needs to make the mental shift to be able to run at those top paces, uh, that he just needs to come out crushing it because he has that talent. And I don't want to see him spending all 17 rounds wading back into the pool. Well, apparently today in Atlanta, or on Saturday, I should say, is the day that he chose to do it. Uh, he came out as a man on a mission, uh, always has the pace early, and uh, always gets good starts. We're waiting for the time where he holds on to one, decided he was going to try to do that here in the heat race, and uh, sadly, only able to hold on to it for a little while. Uh, we saw Cooper Webb come up behind him, and there's no question in previous weeks, the number nine probably just would have let uh, the number two have the position. That is not what he tries to do this week. He gets on the gas. You see him jump over jump badly in the triple triple just preceding the whoop section where he goes down. You could tell he was trying to go faster, not to give up the spot. And it didn't work out for him. He was just, uh, I guess, unfamiliar uh, with the feeling of, of turning it up like that since he, he hasn't done it in a while. I think he was surprised by how fast Cooper Webb came up on him. He was riding fast. And I think he felt like he had the pace to be out there with some space in front of everybody. And when it gets to this clip of him going down in the whoops, this is just absolutely rough. You know, you can see Nate Thrasher went down in a similar spot. It would seem I haven't been able to find the video on that. Uh, but as deep as these ruts were, you know, sometimes if your front tire misses a whoop, you could pull the clutch in a little bit. You can manage to save it if you're willing to sacrifice time. Uh, but the second his front tire misses, these things are so steep, his back tire just sends him airmail. Uh, the thing starts swapping. And I am absolutely surprised this dude got up 
We know he's a warrior, uh, but it was almost two or three crashes in one. If you look at this thing, you know, first his head smashes into the handlebars, thought he was going to be out right there. And then when he hits the ground, you could see on the broadcast in slow-mo, he basically scorpions splayed out backwards on top of the last whoop. James Stewart pointed out that his boots exploded. AC's, uh, the buckles there were just completely undone. He did the race with them open, which is, which is ballsy just on that front. And he ends up climbing back through the pack to fourth. You could tell he was pissed off and just balls of steel there not to be deterred. Uh, but absolutely nasty and just shitty to see considering we want to see this guy pick up the speed. And if he keeps having these gnarly experiences every time he tries, uh, well, even someone as tough as him is going to struggle to find that for 15 minutes without getting a little bit squirrely, my friend. Uh, as for the rest of the 450s, uh, Coop and Kinney in this heat end up beating Josh Hill in third place by 22 seconds. Good job to Hill, by the way. Uh, but it seems that we got pissed off Cooper Webb. He came out. He wants to be better than last week. And it seems at this point in the night that he's going to be able to do it. Based on his heat, you had to think that he was going to get third place at the worst. This guy was going to get on the podium. Uh, in the week leading up, they were talking about fork changes. He went to a different front fork or something like that, perhaps made some other changes. And uh, he said it helped. I don't know if it helped, but it might have helped him mentally. He just feels like he can't find that little bit of extra speed. Like absolutely everybody is saying about him and to him, I'm sure. And it seemed like he'd found in uh, the early part of the afternoon uh, the ability to ride Tomac's pace. And uh, it was really surprising to see that he didn't do better in the main. Now, when we get to the second 450 heat, we've got some big guns in here. We've got the number 23. We've got Chase Sexton. We've got Jason Anderson, the 51 of Barsha, and we've got Eli Tomac. And in the first five seconds of the race, it looks like Eli Tomac is going to run away with this thing just like he did in Glendale with the great starts. Uh, Eli Tomac, a humble guy, and in the pre-race interviews where they were asking him about his starts and in particular in Cooper Webb's choice to line up next to him in Glendale in the second heat race, they asked Eli whether that might have been mind games. Eli didn't speculate, but he was absolutely cocky about his starts. He said straight up he could beat anybody. And uh, you can't blame him. The guy's got the record to back it up, but you never see Eli cocky. And so you're thinking if he says he's going to do it, he's definitely going to do it. Comes out here, gets a jump by three bike links going into the first turn. And then this happens. Justin Barsha comes in late, gets when everybody else is getting on the brakes. He's still on the gas. He coasts into this thing hard. He knows exactly who it is on the outside. Barsha wants to win this race. And uh, he knows that Eli Tomac running up front is going to be a tall task even for him. It's a tall task for anyone. And he takes Eli about as close to the hay bales as 
anybody uh, could possibly do without taking him off the track. Uh, but he stayed on this side of the line. He said, I don't care about your championship race. I'm not going to put you down, but this is just a heat and I want to run away with it. And uh, he isn't able to get it in the end straight up, right? He ends up getting it on a technicality. Anderson goes off the track. He's docked one position. But Justin Barsha was on Jason Anderson's ass the whole time. They pushed each other harder than uh, either one of them would probably ever be willing to run in a heat race. We know the history between these two guys. For weeks, we've been thinking that Barsha was going to get his retribution. Uh, but he's running so damn fast now, getting on the podium routinely, not riding uh, to that degree, keeping it clean. It just wants to beat Anderson straight up. And you could tell not only was he exhausted when he uh, pulled to a stop after the heat, but he was mad he didn't get Anderson straight up. He really wanted that one. And uh, I guess if you have a silver lining for him, it would be that uh, he absolutely tuckered Jason Anderson out for the main. We know that Jason Anderson ends up pulling off in that one for unknown reasons, probably just exhaustion. And we'll talk about uh, the things he did that exhausted him in that main event. Uh, but here, you know, Justin Barsha had just... Uh, tuckered out the new dad already. He must have pushed himself harder than he wanted to in that Georgia heat. Now, we don't always talk about the LCQ on this show, mostly sticking to the uh, top contenders. You know, it's not that we don't have love for the privateers. It's just that there's so much action to get to, we can't always fit it in. But sometimes some of the top guys end up in the LCQ too, battling it out with these guys that drive themselves to the event week after week. You gotta love these guys. And the cowboy Aaron Plessinger ends up in the LCQ on Saturday in Atlanta. And at first, I struggled a little bit to find out what happened with this guy. He's just awfully slow off the gate, gets a horrible start, and then he ends up coasting through the uh, entire rhythm section, first rhythm section, coming out of the thing in 21st. And so I went back and watched it a couple times, and it turns out what happens to this guy is his whole shot device doesn't disengage. He comes out of the gates, his forks are still jammed down as low as they'll go. He comes around the first turn, still can't get it, tries to hit the on-off and he can't because of the suspension situation. And uh, I think he does finally get it sorted out. But by the time he does, uh, as we said, he's down there in 21st and he's not able to climb back, ends up one spot out. And of course, he does go off and win the LCQ. But uh, in that first turn where there's been all that chaos uh, before the 90 end of that tunnel jump, he takes a hard bump from someone. And uh, that's simply not how the top guys ride uh, in the 450 class, the top dudes that aren't going to the LCQ. And I don't think Aaron Plessinger was prepared for that. I don't think he's the type of homie to expect special treatment. Uh, but again, just not used to it and a good recovery from him to stay up on that bump, settle in, and take the opportunity when it presents itself. 
And uh, while we're talking about the LCQ, anyway, there was one moment in there that was just absolutely great. The privateer, John Short, he's in sixth place. He's coming in after that first whoop section into that tight turn, taking the inside line into the second whoop section. And uh, he just comes in with so much throttle. He could, he knew he was on the bubble and uh, he had no chance of stopping. Slams on the brakes, ends up running right into Joan Cross. I'm sure I butchered his name, so I'm sorry for that. Uh, but the 848 was in uh, contention. He was in second place and ends up not making it because John Short just way overestimated how late he'd be able to get on the brakes. And uh, just a bummer for the 848. I hope he makes it uh, into the main next week if he has to go through the LCQ at all. Maybe if someone else ruins your night and you were set to get it, maybe you should just get a pass in some circumstances. Although I, I guess the chaos of the LCQ is uh, what makes it so attractive uh, as fans. Uh, also in this LCQ, uh, Jared Lesher, he's the only guy out there on a two-stroke, I believe. I don't believe Stank Dog, the 722 of Stanky was in attendance. And uh, he comes out there, ends up sliding into fourth place late in this LCQ, has a great does a great job blitzing through the whoops, crushes them, uh, and ends up going 20th overall in the main. But, uh, you know, he's throwing knack-knacks over the finish line. You could tell he was stoked just to qualify. And it's pretty sick that on a fa fast track like this that really favors torque, uh, that any dude could pull it off on a two-stroke in this day and age. Uh, kind of curious to see uh, how much better this guy would fare if they got him on uh, one of these uh, cushy old uh, low-end power uh, Star Yamaha 450s. Uh, anyways, I guess at this point, we uh, ought to go ahead and uh, get into the main event. You know, no more messing around with this uh, preliminary bullshit. And uh, apparently the number 94 of Kenny Rocks and the man they've taken to call in German chocolate on Stewart's podcast and elsewhere uh, goes out and gets the jump. He's looking fast. I think when we were talking about the heat race, I maybe didn't give his run there the credit it deserves uh, just because he uh, putzed around in second place there. But uh, he was really on the tail of Cooper Webb in that first heat, and he definitely looked like he was primed for a podium every bit as much as the number two was. And of the two, he's the one in the main event that ends up executing. Uh, of course, not more than everyone. Sexton took away the whole shot that Kenny Roxon got real fast, uh, just dipped on the inside of his old buddy. And uh, you'll love to see it, Chase Sexton. He just goes gate to checkered, you know, he looked like he does in qualifying the whole time. And uh, it's the first ride we've seen this season, certainly of an entire main, if you exclude triple crowns, where this guy has risen to the full extent of his potential. And uh, you knew he was due. The speed was there. We were waiting on the consistency. We talked about how we saw that last week in Glendale, and you're hoping maybe he could finally figure it out, and he does here, and uh, 
you know, just so good to see. Again, we knew that this guy was capable of putting rides like this in without error, or, uh, although there have been some detractors lately. And although we've only seen it once and we've been waiting for it for such a long time, the fact that he was able to do it so smoothly, it, it just felt right. As surprised as you were every time he crashed, uh, seeing him stay up upright for 20 wasn't that surprising at all and you expect to see that pretty much every week in short order you see him put in a ride like that and you, you don't see why he couldn't come out and do that 10 11 times a season just like eli tomac he's got even more raw speed than the number three and uh, when he's in control of the bike uh, his technique is just as flawless um just to segue back to Kenny real fast, he ends up going third on the night because he ends up getting bested by Justin Barsha, who is absolutely running fast. And I just wanted to make the note with Kenny that it's uh, it's pretty sick to see this guy do this, uh, not just health-wise to stay in for the full 20 minutes, uh, but to see him doing it in hot conditions, uh, sometimes outdoors last year with the gnarlier temperatures, the dude uh, has struggled historically, as you can understand, with his immune system problems. Uh, I didn't think after Indy he was going to get another win this year. Uh, but you wanted to see him do well. You knew he was capable of more podiums. And to see him do it here in a very different situation uh, to what the track was in Indianapolis makes you really hopeful for this dude's outdoor career. And uh, on a night where the number 51 isn't running as fast as he was, uh, I think, you know, maybe look five weeks ago, uh, old school Barsha running typical five to eight. Kenny gets it done. And he was able to hold off Barsha here for about 14 minutes. Um, and that's just all he had. Barsha was on him uh, from the start of the thing. And uh, the guy's great in the whoops on the gas gas. It looks like they've got the suspension dialed in and have for a while now. And he was blitzing these whoops pretty much all night where uh, everybody else had to slow down uh, a time or two, even if they're known for blitzing these uh, big gnarly whoop-de-doos. And uh that's where he ends up making the move on Kenny. As soon as he does, you're looking at the clock. He's four down on Sexton. You wonder if he's going to be able to close the gap with some open air. Not so. Barsha is getting faster weekly, but he doesn't have the raw speed of Sexton on top. The gap only grows. Uh, but I think Barsha's still got a win in him and he takes his third podium in a row here uh, and his fourth in five weeks. Now, when we get to the two guys that are actually in point contention, uh, we know the storyline is that neither of them had a great night. They had mediocre starts and uh, they weren't able to find the pace after that. You know, Eli, of course, running around on Cooper's tail all night. And uh, I got to talk about a moment before we talk about those two running around in tandem uh, that happened with Jason Anderson. We're going to go ahead and take a clip and, and look at this. This was before he dropped out of the race, obviously, I suppose. 
Uh, but I want to look at the different treatment he gave to the two championship contenders. Now, if you remember, uh, last week, Cooper Webb tried to force a pass on Anderson in Glendale uh, that, you know, crossed the line of good taste. I'm not going to say it. It, it wasn't uh, that it was dirty, but, you know, he gave him a rough ride. It was more a Mills calculation and desperation than it was ill intent. Uh, but we know El Hombre is who he is, probation or not. He doesn't take kindly to that. He didn't retaliate in Glendale while he could have, and he didn't do anything dirty in Atlanta against Cooper Webb. But what he did do was ride Cooper Webb as hard as he possibly could. Uh, you could tell by his body language he wasn't going to be able to keep it up for the full 20 minutes. Uh, but he did everything he could to take Webb's lines away. Although Webb was running faster, Jason was just not going to give him any real estate, uh, you can see right here in the whoops section in particular, he can tell he's done right here. And uh, he easily could have maintained his line, let Cooper had it, have it. And he doesn't. He cuts to the inside, holds on for as long as he can, eats away clock time that Cooper needs to advance through the pack. And that's just good racing. But the reason it's so significant is that uh, just a half a lap, a lap later, when Eli Tomac catches him, Anderson looks over, sees who it is, and goes out of his way to cede the spot to Eli Tomac through the rhythm section. And I think that was a very concerted effort in a race where he probably knew that he wasn't going to get the whole 20 done just to fuck up the night of the dude that fucked with him a week ago in Arizona. And of course, it turns out not to make a difference, right? The places would have been what they been, what they were, despite the fact that you thought Eli Cooper was going to close this gap at any time, or at least I did. We know he's not a guy that tries to take every point that's on the table. He chips away at it week after week. He's had tremendous success doing it. He's up seven on Cooper. And when he settles in behind him early, thanks to Jason Anderson, you're pretty certain that he's just biding his time, just like everyone in the stadium. You think he's biding his time to get in there and make a pass when it's opportune. Maybe he's going to study Webb's lines. Maybe he's just going to rest and make Cooper Webb turn it on faster and faster, tire himself out, see what the number two's got. But it just doesn't happen. And eventually people start pushing up on Eli from behind and they show the shot of the pit board on the broadcast saying, you got to get the number two. And yet Eli just can't quite find a way to turn it up um, and then you get to the last two laps. And once Cooper Webb realizes that Eli isn't waiting, that he just doesn't have it, Cooper Webb realizes he can spend what's left in the tank, steps on the gas. We'll go ahead and take a look at the uh, lap time he got here uh, in the second to last lap. That was when he decided to turn it on, I think, knowing the white flag was going to come down. And he just put a gap on Eli by seconds in that back half of the track out of nowhere. If he'd ridden like that the whole time, then he would have been up there competing with Chase. Uh, but he just couldn't find it early. 
And, uh, you know, you'd think the guy could maybe be content or would pretend to be content uh, on the broadcast as he does uh, portray himself as a pretty chipper guy uh, with getting one point, four rounds left. You know, six is not a huge margin. And yet this dude was pretty much as pissed as I've ever seen him. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, listen to him describe this ride in his own words. Yeah, I rode like shit, honestly. <laughs> and so, you know, you don't hear that very much. You don't hear a guy uh, blaspheme, you know, saying shit and then uh, thanking the good Lord in the same sentence. Uh, and I like it. I respect it. I think this dude knows that uh, statistically, Eli might not have a mediocre ride the rest of the season. If you look at the pattern he set at most, he's going to take one more probably where he doesn't finish off the podium. And, and Cooper's uh, irritation, his vexation, wasn't just that he put in a, what was a mediocre performance because it was actually a decent performance objectively if you look solely at the ride. But he knew this might be his last chance with four rounds to go uh, to get ahead of Eli when Eli not riding at his prime. And, uh, you know, if Eli takes fifth and Coop takes first, that's an entirely different ball game. You know, he's coming away with the red plate again. And I bet that he probably could have sniffed that out, I think, early on in the day when he saw how fast he was running, how well the new suspension front-end changes were working. He thought he had this thing. And uh, to see this time a, a unique situation, it wasn't that Eli bested him. It was just that it was showtime for him and he couldn't get past himself. And uh, we'll see how he rebounds next week. It's still close as ever. When we go into East Rutherford, uh, there's a good chance that the plate could switch bikes again. And, you know, hell, who knows? With Chase Sexton's win, he's only 17 down from Eli. Maybe Eli and Coop crash in the first turn. Uh, even if they don't, you know, Eli, you know, maybe he sleeps wrong, has a, a crunchy neck again. Uh, Coop's only nine down. Uh, or I'm sorry, Coop's only six points off the lead. It's Chase Sexton who's only nine points down from Coop. Chase could easily move into second at the worst next week if Coop can't figure it out. And I honestly have no idea what's going to happen there. But I am excited to find out. And as soon as we do find out, I'll get on here and hit you guys up with a brand new episode. Uh, new Jersey next week. It's going to be an East-West showdown. It'll be exciting to see these guys like Hunter and Hayden go up against Jet Lawrence and RJ Hampshire. Great to see how their talent stacks up and uh, we've still got a lot to settle in the big boy class not done at all as we've said and i'm excited about it i hope you are too and i hope i'll see you next week if you like what you saw here go ahead and follow us if you're not already go ahead and check us out on instagram at the live for supercross pod and until next time i want you to remember if you live for Supercross, then you need some love from the Live for Supercross podcast.